And so, Father, when we stop and think and tell ourselves the truth about what sinners we are, it is with hearts of rejoicing and gladness that we say, what a Savior you are. That somehow in your sovereign plan of the ages, you rescued us from our own brokenness and our own sinfulness. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin and that, it, that he took our place and is our substitute. We need it, Lord, and, and thank you that we can walk in newness of life. Thank you for the joy that it brings to gather on the first day of the week like this, to open our Bibles and to sit still and to be quiet and to hear you speak to us. May your Holy Spirit prompt us and prod us. May we have ears to hear and willing hearts to surrender to you, to live in obedience to your word and according to your will. And so we commit ourselves now this time to the, to the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you will recall that a couple years ago, our now 10-year-old son Jonathan got after me to quit using him from the pulpit as an illustration, and so I made a deal with him that any time I did, I had to pay him five bucks. Well, the best thing that ever happened to him was for us to go to two services where I <laughs> preached the same message, where he doubles up the ante here. So... Um, Jonathan, another five bucks coming your way here, pal. We, um, in typical Van Marceau fashion, the other week, um, I found an, a 1991 Ford Ranger pickup truck with only a little bit of rust on it and still running pretty well. Got it for 500 bucks. Took my old GMC Safari all-wheel drive, so it weighed, it was a little bit heavy of a vehicle, drove it down to A&D Auto Parts behind Sheets in Carneysville. Maybe that's what I was thinking about, Marika. And um, got $448 for it, scrap. So had a birthday over the Labor Day weekend and added $52, and there was my 500 bucks for my new Ford Ranger XLT 1991, did I say five-speed standard transmission pickup truck. A man just feels good with a pickup truck, you know? So Labor Day Monday morning, we got the truck in the driveway. I had given my mother-in-law, who I love dearly, a gift certificate for her birthday some weeks ago that um, I would spend an entire day working for her as her gift. That's in one way kind of cheap for me because I don't have to cough up cash. And on the other hand, she really likes it because uh, it's hard for her to get me out to Hedgesville otherwise. And so we had arranged that on Labor Day Monday from basically early in the morning till late at night, um, she could put together a checklist of any task, none too small, none too big, and I would work away with all my strength all day Monday. So Jonathan and I had our new truck backed up to the garage door. We had loaded the chainsaw, the weed whacker tools, a number of things that we needed because I knew what Mamaw had on her list. And I thought of one more thing, and I ran into the house to get it. And I came back out of the garage, came through, and where my truck was was an empty driveway. Well, Jonathan was already sitting in the passenger seat waiting for me to go. I had the truck sitting there turned off in first gear, but I had not put the parking brake on. We live on a little bit of a slope there through the bottom yard, and I couldn't get it at first because I know that Fords are not going to be raptured and where my Ford was, and there's nothing there. And, I, and so I just like, I stopped. You know that funny feeling? And I looked up, 
And there was my truck way down in the bottom yard. Well, Jonathan, sitting to wait in a new truck, decided he was going to shift it from first into second and play shifting gears. I never had given that a thought. Just the moment I was going to run in the house, of course, he popped it out of gear and down the driveway and across the yard it went. Thankfully, it was pointing out just across the lawn. On the inside, I was a little bit upset at first, and then I realized it was actually kind of funny. But I stayed stern and scolded him, hopefully teaching him a lesson about He told me later that he actually crawled over into the driver's seat and got the brake on down across the lawn. That was a pretty good move, Jonathan. I tell you that little story to introduce where we're going, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, where this morning we want to focus upon this reality that there are consequences to behavior, aren't there? Actions and behaviors always result in consequence. Shifted out of first gear into neutral, and something's going to happen if the parking brake's not set. What we have in this pivotal passage of Scripture in our Bibles where in Genesis chapter 1, as we've been working our way through Genesis, that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, everything was good, wasn't it? And everything was just the way it was supposed to be. And then we noticed last week that without warning and without introduction, we immediately shifted gears. And we have, due to the behavior of Adam and Eve, a consequence that comes upon all mankind where the whole thing is ruined. That which one moment looked so good and was so right is now destroyed by decisions and behavior that was never intended to be. I want us to read all of Genesis chapter 3 this morning to uh, take in this story once again. We'll be here for another message or two as there's numerous lessons for us in this passage. If you're maybe 30 and up and you've lived a while, you'll know well when we go in our message this morning to look at the consequences of sin or what sin always is. Some of us have lived it. Some of us know, and you'd be able to bear witness this morning that when we look at this word sin and how it enters mankind and how it always works and how it always destroys, some of us can bear witness to the the testimony of the authenticity of this passage and we would say that's exactly how it is. But for some of you children and young people in the audience today, I want to ask you to particularly listen closely it's a little bit like, the, like going to driver's ed on an uh, afternoon and you roll in, you're 15 years old and you're going to driver's ed and, and they're going to show you some video footage of what happens when you have a wreck. And you can sit there and you can really take it in and you can say, you know what, I am fully capable of making those mistakes and destroying my life with one of those kind of wrecks. That's why we're supposed to stop at stop signs and yield at yield signs and stay on the right side of a yellow, solid yellow line. Or I can sit in driver's ed and I can write notes and text message and I can say, bah humbug, I know how to drive a car. I don't need to listen to them. That's other people that are going to crash and wreck and burn. And when you read Genesis chapter 3, there's a huge behavioral crash, wreck, and burn. And some of you young people will save yourself great grief if you'll listen closely this morning and let the Spirit of God challenge your hearts and avoid the way sin always works. Where I really want to get in the message this morning, hopefully we'll make it there, 
is ultimately then the final results of sin or the consequences. And there are four of them that are clearly spelled, spelled out in this passage. Four results of God's judgment upon sin and the practical and the theological and doctrinal relevancy of that is huge even upon us today. Let's read the passage and then let's jump in for the remaining time. Now the serpent, verse 1, Genesis 3, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then... The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit with the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. and With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, and since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out of the out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What a remarkable chapter that is. What a remarkable story. 
It's not without its questions, and we could wish we had more detail sometimes to answer some of these questions, and we'll touch on some of those in today and in the weeks ahead. And one of the things I want to challenge you, though, as we look at this passage again today, is to ask ourselves, as we've been asking from Genesis chapter 1, remember the little helicopter we talked about and binoculars and microscope and telescope? And we're going to fly all over the world and see if we can find anything that would contradict what God's Word says is how it happened. In a way, theologically and practically, in everyday life and living and life experience, I want you to do that with Genesis chapter 3. Is there anything here that isn't exactly the way it really is? Does this not bear testimony to exactly the way we operate, to exactly the way we view God and his instruction to us and our selfish, sinful will to always want to turn away from God. Isn't that exactly what we observe around us every day? And isn't that exactly what we experience in our own tug of war? Even if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior and the old flesh fights and wars within us. So this morning, the first part of our message is to take really a practical look And I think we need to look at this passage and we need to understand that we're dealing now with the inception of sin and the introduction of sin to the world. The Bible doesn't really tell us why it happened. It doesn't really tell us why God put the tree there. It just says this is what happened. And from this point on, because of Adam and Eve's decision, all mankind is sinful. We'll see that at the end of the message tonight. The New Testament totally affirms this teaching. I think as we review the first half of the passage that we covered last week, we're going to see five, five uh, realities of what sin is. Sin is always these things. Let's review the first half of the passage, and then let's get to the judgment phase of the passage where God is condemning and judging the serpent, the woman, the man, and the earth itself, and hence all humankind. And then what's the resolution to that judgment? We were introduced to it last week and we covered the first uh, 13 verses or so. We see, first of all, as we look at it, the introduction to sin. Everything was good in chapters 1 and 2. Then all of a sudden in chapter 3, because of the decision and the choice, everything turns bad. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Skeptics will look at this passage as we reference it. How could a serpent speak? The Bible clearly in the New Testament identifies the serpent as Satan. Satan evidently has the capacity to indwell this animal. Evidently, this was a beautiful animal. And Eve was taken by it. Either in her naivety, she didn't know that animals couldn't talk, or somehow it didn't seem unnatural for her to communicate. We don't know, and the Bible doesn't explain, but I think that it really happened. I don't think this is just some mythical expression, as we talked about last week. But the first lesson about sin that we learn in Eve's encounter with the serpent is, number one, that sin is so seductive. It is so seductive. Here you have the perfect man, the perfect woman, living in the beautiful, perfect Garden of Eden, which we said was probably a vast expanse of territory. It was well done. In fact, it was perfectly done, beautifully equipped for the beautiful relationship that the man and the woman could enjoy, and they could enjoy with God as he walked with them. And you have the same effect as you want to scream at her, Don't do it! 
It's, it's the picture of like a meat grinder. I can picture my dad butchering either venison or sometimes we'd butcher hogs or butcher cattle for people in our church, and my dad knew how to butcher. And he had this meat grinder that he had, It was an old hand crank that he had put a flywheel on to an electric motor, and we would clamp it to the tabletop for butchering. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's just a big chute with a grinder going in there, and it's like there's a meat grinder on the table. You walk in and you say, I wonder what will happen if I shove my hand down in the meat grinder. Don't do it. What is it about sin that it is always so harmful, but yet so wonderfully, seductively attractive? We see it here, don't we? And this serpent Satan used to indwell, he gets, he gets, him, he gets Eve to question God's plan of blessing for her life. Did God really say, and we're going to have a whole sermon just on dealing with temptation, where we're going to look specifically at what he says but he gets her to doubt God's plan of blessing. He gets her to start thinking, this really is good-looking fruit, and you got to believe that Eve woke up that morning with no thought of disobedience on her mind. Sin defined is anything which is contrary to the character and will of God. Did you hear that? Sin is anything that is contrary to the character and will of God. If God says, stand still, and you move, then moving is sin. Why? Because God is the moral judge of the universe. He created us as a loving Heavenly Father. He knows what makes us tick. He filled us with passion and with the ability to behave and make decisions and choices. And He knows what will make us function to the maximum of our potential. And so He has outlined many things. Like, thou shalt not steal. Therefore, to steal is sin. Why? Because it is a contradiction of the character and will of God, period. Sin, in its essence of meaning, the word sin is a word that means to miss the mark. Just to miss the mark. Many of you have shot a slingshot or a bow and arrow or a rifle, and you miss the mark sometimes. You intend to hit that black bullseye and you can see the concentric circles as they, as they ring out around the bullseye and you, you line up and you aim and you take a shot and, oh, I missed the bullseye. That's what sin is. That's what it means. It means that God says, here is what I want, here's what the standard is, and you done missed it. You have sinned. And there is something in us And in fact, let's turn to the New Testament book of James because one of the questions that comes up is how come God created Adam with this ability to choose to sin? Go way back to the end of your New Testament to the book of James. And we have here in the most concise, revealing statement in the Bible what the the origin of sin is. Now, let's just stop and think for a minute. If God created Adam and Eve and God is all-knowing, Why did he put a tree in the middle of the garden and say, don't eat from it, if he knew they were going to eat from it? The Bible doesn't tell us why he did that. I do know, at some level, part of the reason he did it is because God did not create a world full of robots. But God created man with a free will, with the ability, at some level, to choose. I believe that Adam had the capacity to decide to obey God or to turn away from God. Now think about this for a minute. 
One of the questions you could ask is, why did God even create people in the world to begin with? When you study the universe and all the stars and the planets, and you see a, a planetarium presentation on the gabillions of miles and all the gabillions of stars and planets, and then there's this tiny rinky-dink planet Earth, and on the planet Earth are people. And then God's outside of it all. What in the world's that all about? Because God didn't need us, did he? He absolutely did not. God cannot have any capacity of want. God can't say, I'd really like a peanut butter jelly sandwich right now with Jif Crunchy. Now, he could say he wants one and could have it, but he doesn't say it because he's hungry or because he wants something. God all the time, always, is completely filled and full by definition. Not of full, not of food, but of, uh, of being. He is, he is the I am. He always is everything. God can't get hungry. God can't get tired. God can't say, man, I'm really lonely. I wish I had somebody to talk to. God can't get lonely. He cannot be lacking or wanting. God is always completely whole. God is always, that's what perfection is. That's what the perfection of his holiness is as well. So why did God say, I, I wish it's kind of like having pet mice or something. I'll put them in an aquarium with some cedar shavings on my dresser so after I come home from school, I got somebody to talk to. And that's a base thought, but here God creates the Garden of Eden and he has a man and a woman there and he comes in the evening and fellowships with them. I don't know why. He doesn't say why other than Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, all things were made by him and for him all things were created. Somehow, as Alan was talking about the Piper series, on the flaming center, God did all of this for the exaltation of his own glory. Somehow, redeemed beings for whom Jesus Christ died will one day be a trophy of God's grace and be a testimony, a song, a living demonstration of the goodness of God. I can't explain it any further than that. All I know is that the Bible says this is how it was, and I also know when I look around, that's exactly how it is. It's always this way. Sin is seductive. And in James chapter 1, he clearly says that God did not put that tree in the middle of the garden to seduce Adam and Eve. It was the right way to do things. That's why God did it. James says, when tempted, verse 13, chapter 1 of James, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And I take that to be a universal axiom. That is not just something that he in, in, uh, implemented after the fall. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he doesn't mess around with us by tempting us with evil. I'm into catching mice in my garage right now. We live against the woods and... You know, I got junk laying around in the weeds, and so we're a great place for mice to live, and I leave the garage doors open, and I love that. I love to put peanut butter on that trap, and I love to think about how that trap's going to come down and slam that sorry mouse, and I hope he's conscious for a little while, and he knows what he did. I hate those little boogers running around, but what am I doing? I'm tempting him. I'm, I'm setting it up for him. Yeah. 
God didn't do that in the garden. God didn't say, all right, I got this beautiful garden, and now I'm going to put two trees in the middle. They can eat from the one, but they can't eat from the other, and I'm going to get them. She's going to do it. (sighs) James said, no, no. And I take it, based on this passage as well, if God wasn't toying with them, then they had well within their capacity to simply obey him and to live out the reality of his will in the garden. But look what James says. Though God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone, verse 14 of James, but each one, I would say including Adam and Eve, is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And isn't that exactly what God told Adam? Don't do this. If you do, you will die. I take it that in the capacity of agents who have some level of a free will, and I take it that that the angelic beings at one time must have been able to be like this, It would appear from the testimony of Scripture that that they are no longer choosing loyalty. Because you say, well, where did Satan come from? Did God create him? Well, yes, at some level, but he didn't create him to be wicked. The inference in Ezekiel and in Isaiah passages where it talks about Lucifer, the morning star, he evidently was the the highest reigning angel, angelic being in heaven. And evidently, just like in this James passage, just like in in personhood, humanhood, they had the ability on the inside to have something that could choose to cross over the line. Here's the line, but I can look at it and I can say, "Ah, I'm going to do it my way. And Lucifer could look around and evidently be envious of God himself or perhaps he was envious of the position of the second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, in ages past in heaven. And he said, I want to be like that. There was evidently a conflict, evidently, and he was cast out. You can't unequivocally prove that Lucifer is Satan, but it certainly looks that way when you read the text. And he was cast out of heaven along with rebellious angels that evidently some have freedom and are now demons, and others, Jude and Second Peter tell us, are held in captivity for the day of judgment. So evidently not all angels that were kicked out of heaven in the rebellion with Lucifer are free to roam the earth. Some of them are held in captivity for the day of judgment already. Others have a level of freedom. Like a few weeks ago, we talked about the man at Gadaria who was possessed by legions of demons... And, they, and Jesus cast them out and they went into the pigs, remember? There's a lot we don't know, but we can only surmise based on the glimpses of these truths that Scripture gives us. But did you notice the Bible doesn't take time to explain all these details to us? It just said, this is the way it is. And in James chapter 1, he adds to us that we, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire so... Creatures of free will and choice evidently have the ability deep inside themselves to look at something that's off limits and say, I think I really want that. Anybody relate to that out there? Is that the way it really is? You know as well as I do, that's exactly how it is, and the Bible's not making up something we don't know all about. But notice that it says evidently for that 
for Adam and Eve to have looked at that fruit and to said, man, I'd love to eat that fruit, was not sin. For that desire to well up inside was not sin. Look what James says. His own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, evidently there is a tripping point, and some of you know what it is. It's a little bit like the guy in Proverbs, the immoral young man in Proverbs chapter 7, where it says, and all at once he went to her. And then like a deer stepping in a noose or getting an arrow through the liver, he steps into sin. To walk by her house, to stand by the fruit, that wasn't sin. Even the pull and the desire, but they should have run to God. Instead, they let the desire take hold and entice them until all at once, it says, and then it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That is a picture of exactly what happened in Genesis 3. Let's return there. Our first lesson about sin from this passage, Genesis 3, is we see that Eve woke up that morning, and she didn't plan to go put her fist in a meat grinder. She's just taking a walk through the garden. She was just looking at the beautiful fruit, and then she says, well, that one's off limits. And then she gave her ears to listen to the wrong voices. But listen to me, especially young people, and some of you adults know this all too well from life experience. Sin is so seductive. You can't play with it. You can't entertain yourself with it. You don't mess with it. It'll get you every time. It's bigger than you are. We'll see that in, again in Genesis chapter 4 when we talk about Cain and how he played around with God's instruction. Secondly, I want you to see that when Eve looked at the fruit, notice verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. Why did she do it? Number two, because sin is selfish. Sin is selfish. You ever notice how people don't sin to help other people out? Maybe Robin Hood did, but nobody else does. We sin for one reason, so that we can feel good, so that we can feed the appetites of our own flesh. That their money at that bank, I want it. I was thinking today, this morning early, when I was dressing and getting prepared to come over, I was thinking about all the things in the last 22, 23 years of full-time ministry that I have seen church people do for, in, in the area of sin. Homosexuality, blatant, brutal immorality, beat their kids, beat their wives, rob the bank. These are supposedly God-fearing, born-again Christian people. I decided that I've seen everything I can see except for murder. I don't, guess I, I don't guess that's there. Maybe it is. I have to think about it. I don't want to think about it. Maybe a couple most perverse sins. What is it? At the driver's seat of every one of those behaviors and sins, when they popped it out of first gear and went down into second gear, they did it because of their selfish drive. I want satisfaction now put on a bandana, jump in the car, get, get their husband's gun and go rob the bank? Are you kidding me? Why would you do that? Because I want money now. Goof around, lie and deceive their wives so they can hook up at a hotel and meet with their, their neighbor's wife. Why? Because they want gratification now. That's what sin does. Sin is very seductive. Sin is very selfish. Selfish. 
closely related to number one and number two is thirdly, notice that this wasn't yuck she was getting into. This is a very sensual thing. Sin is always very sensual. What I mean by that, it's very responsive to our sensory responses. Notice that Eve could look and see that it was pleasant. She desired the the wisdom that she could gain from it. She was convinced that somehow she'd be better off if she ate it. It was pleasing to the eye, desirable for wisdom. It's the way it is, isn't it? In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we have a very similar rundown, don't we? Love not the world, my friends, John said, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that is in the world, the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Three things. The lust of my eye, the lust of my flesh, and the pride of my life. That's what Eve was dealing with here, wasn't it? She could see it. She could taste it. She could feel it. It's very sensual. What does that mean? That means that in the way God hardwired our bodies, that sin will always have a flash of pleasure. I suspect that even murderers and people who trip bombs and blow up buildings have some kind of a satanic flash of pleasure and adrenaline rush the moment they hit the button. That's what sin will do. But I want you to see here that though sin is seductive and selfish and sensual, it is very short-lived. Number four, it is short-lived. There's Eve. She's got every tree in the whole garden to eat, and then she eats this fruit. How long do you think the pleasure lasts? Let's look at the text. Look what it says. And when the woman saw, verse 6, that the fruit of the tree was good and so forth, she ate it. And then she gave it to her husband, and he ate it. Then verse 7, And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. I think, I think I have the interpretation of this passage. They ate the fruit. They really enjoyed it. They lived happily ever after. And then right before they died, they realized they did something wrong and it was, they were upset by it. Now, I suggest that even, even as they wiped their mouths from the juice of the fruit and the scales fell off their eyes and this sense of morality came over them that God had for some reason originally held back that this knowledge of right and wrong dawned upon them to the degree that even the very response you have, if right now you stood up, like my dad did one time, story, parentheses, just popped in my mind. I was on a big coach bus full of my teenagers in a youth group up on a bus up in Michigan at my dad's house at the lake. My dad was pretty sick then, and he had stopped talking, but he could still walk, and he was losing weight. And he steps up on the bus to wave goodbye to this whole coach bus full of teenagers. And when he raised his hand up, his pants shot down. It broke my heart. It was actually kind of funny now that I think about it. He laughed. He kind of belly laughed for a minute. But you know what he did? He he immediately went to pull his pants back up. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. For the first time in their life, immediately, just like if you stood up right now and your pants stayed down in the chair, whoa! Why? Immediately, Adam and Eve had that exact same feeling. So from the time they bit the fruit, yum, this is so good. Bam, why did I do this? 
All of a sudden, they saw the world through an entire different light, and they realized now they could never undo what they had just done. That sin, they had missed the mark. How short-lived it was. It never lives up to its billing, does it? Never. Finally, here's a deep theological concept on sin. Number five, it is sad. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Not because he didn't know where he was, but because he wanted Adam with his own mouth to convict himself in the answer. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What do you think Adam would have given at that moment to undo the behavior of the few minutes before that? Now I'm afraid of God. Now I've made a... a, I've made a mockery out of myself with these fig leaves I've tried to fit over myself. I don't even know why I'm ashamed, but I'm all ashamed. I'm afraid. I'm hiding from the very one that loves me the most. That's what sin will do, won't it? It's so seductive and so stupid and so sad that a husband will break his wife's heart, the person he really loves more than anybody else in the world. A parent and a child will chase each other around the house throwing things at each other. And who means more to one another than that? Why are they? Sin... Sin, it's real. When we live in a culture and in an age that wants to downplay sin, I'll tell you something. Sin is destroying our homes, it's destroying our nation, it's destroying our young people. And until you understand that you're a sinner, you never think you need a savior. I remember going to my 10-year high school class reunion. This past summer was my 30th year. And I remember walking around, and I've referenced this before, just after 10 years, and to see the results of sin upon the lives of those young people I went to high school broke my heart. I always thought I was a geek. I always thought I was being held away from all the good times and the fun because my dad said, boy, you live for Jesus or I'm down goes your meat house. I still don't know what that means, but my dad said it, and I <laughs> didn't want to know what that meant. And I can remember, and I've said this before, I can remember at different times, one time in particular, no five bucks for this one, Jonathan, (laughs) holding Jonathan as a baby after we first got him, and I would do the night feeding, and my home would be quiet, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and I'm in my own home, all my bills are paid, I got a 1970 truck full of rust sitting in the driveway, I got a beautiful wife, I can hear her breathing, I got a daughter, I can hear her breathing, got a 270 deer rifle in the closet, got a 10-inch radio arm saw out in the garage. I've never had an affair. I've never snorted coke. I'm holding this baby boy, sucking his bottle, and I say, God has been so good. There is no fruit that I want to eat right now to deny God's blessing upon my life. Why would I do that? Well, we've got to cut our message off right here. We'll get to the consequences, the judicial consequences. They're very interesting. And you'll find some fascinating insight, but let me review with you, especially young people, adults too. Don't you see so clearly from this passage how seductive sin is, how selfish, how sensual, how short-lived, and how sad? Some of you know, some of you bear the scars, the burdens of those stupid moments of eating forbidden fruit. The good news is that Though there was judgment, you'll see in the passage that even immediately he prophesied that a rescuer would come. 
and crush Satan's head and defeat sin and the curse. Yes, from this day on, weeds begin to grow. Snakes had poison. Animals start eating each other. And the whole world began to uncreate as the law, second law of thermodynamics and entropy kicks in with the fall. But we have good news today. The good news is that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we keep a cross up here. That's why we sing songs about the Lamb of God, the one who was the sacrifice for our sin, because we're sinners and we always stick our hand down in the meat grinder. It's our nature. But Jesus comes along and he says, I'll put your hand back on, buddy. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come unto me and I'll get you to my Father. You walk into this church today thinking this, this religious stuff is for the birds. I'll tell you something. You don't know joy and peace and happiness until you've been with a bunch of your Christian brothers cutting wood or fishing or playing ball and you start talking about the grace of God and what you used to be and now what you are in Christ. There's nothing like it. There is no fruit, however savory, for a flash second that is worth the knowledge of knowing that you're going to heaven, your sin is forgiven, and that the Lord will walk with you the rest of your life. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Are you born again? Is your sin forgiven? You think you're the man. You think you're the woman. You think you can handle it? Go ahead. Go ahead. There's lots of meat grinders running out there. Go stick all your hands and legs and your head in them. You're going to find out one day that sin will destroy you just like it did Adam and Eve. We'll talk later about how we're under condemnation because of it, but today just know that you can be released from the power and authority of sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Friend, there's room at the cross for you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He took our sin to release us from the guilt and the burden. Can you come to him today and accept him as your Lord and Savior? Be free from the guilt and the burden. Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, we acknowledge our weaknesses. All of us in this room know the tug and the inner burn and desire to cross over the line, to be drawn away and dragged away and enticed like a mouse going after peanut butter, little knowing that it's going to cost us our lives. Father, today, would you open eyes and soften hearts and help our young people, especially and even adults, Lord, to know you're a loving heavenly father and you've given Jesus to make a way for us to have freedom from sin and guilt and death and that those these physical bodies will die we can live forever in heaven with you what a day that will be in the meantime help us to be faithful help us to come to the cross for the freedom that we find there in Jesus name I pray amen